Welcome to the 44th episode of Spurb's Herb. Today we're going to be talking about a really interesting herb. I had no idea about this herb before studying this, and I have learned so much. I am super excited about this herb. It's Shilajit. I, I actually had to look up how to, to pronounce it. I think that's as close as it gets. Shilajit, or Shilajit, uh, which is mineral pitch. It is an Ayurvedic herb, which we're going to talk about. Uh, but so without further ado, why don't we get into what we're going to talk about today? So today we will be looking at another Ayurvedic herb, Shilajit. This is a very interesting quote-unquote herb that may have some very interesting effects on modern diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, hormone imbalances, and infertility. As usual, we will be exploring something a little different as we continue our discussion of great physicians. In this case, the great Indian physician Shushruta. I, I wanted, you know, we're, we're talking about an Indian herb, an Ayurvedic herb, so I thought let's let's talk about a great Indian physician. Shushruta is, is Shushruta is supposed to be the greatest Indian physician of all time. So we're going to talk a little bit about him. Any way you look at it, this episode is going to be interesting and exciting. Stay with us for the journey. Before we get into all that. Boy, oh boy, do we have a deal for you today. We have spent years preparing our How to Understand Drugs as an Herbalist series, and it is finally complete, and we are celebrating. Celebrating with the biggest deal we have ever offered. You get our complete 45-hour course with CEUs and a lovely frameable certificate of completion for half off our normal price but we're including so much more. We will throw in a signed copy of my book, Integrative Pharmacology, Combining Modern Pharmacology with Integrative Medicine. This isn't a small book, this is a textbook, it's huge. And you're gonna get a, a signed copy for free. Plus, you will get an additional two hour course. I think one of our most important courses, Interpreting Chinese Medical Research for free. And that is still not all, we will give not one, but two hours more of any course you want out of all the courses we have. This is 49 hours of courses in continuing education, a free signed book, a lovely certificate, a total value of $809.95 worth of amazing products for only $337.50. Just go to www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org slash megadeal. That's Integrated Medicine Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L dot org slash Megadil. And get your discount right now. But hurry, this is a limited time offer. All right, so let's get into today's episode. Uh, we're going to start by talking about the Vedic healers. And, and I, I kind of like starting here. So um, according to uh, Saini, who's a, who's a researcher who wrote uh, an article on the ancient uh, healers, Ayurvedic healers, uh, I, I don't know if it's a he or she, um, said the earliest reliable information about medicine and medical practitioners in India is available beginning from 1500 BCE. So that's a long time ago, over 3,500 years. 
uh, he, she continues saying, he continues, the Vedic people regarded the spirits of all objects in the world as gods. The ailments of the human body were attributed to divine factors and magico-religious means were utilized in the cure. The role of the priests was to establish contact between the gods and the humans. They were believed to have the power to summon, pacify, and appease the gods. Basically, priests almost held a magical power over gods through their mantras and used this power for healing purposes as well. And basically, the priest, therefore, was also the healer. Now, this shouldn't sound strange to you because I think most healing traditions are, are very similar. I know if you go into uh, Chinese history, Chinese medical history, we, we you know, have taught that. and We talked about the shamans, um, the early, and very, very similar. So this is a similar path in India. And I think we can go to Greco medicine, Greek medicine, and, and Arabic medicine have similar sort of... Uh, underfindings, uh, you know, underpinnings of their, of their myths. And I think it's a very standard sort of traditional approach to this. So, but as this developed, medical observation and theorization in the Vedic period, so this is the period of time, it's called the Vedic period, laid the foundation for a more rational and methodical system of Indian medicine known as Ayurveda, which literally, literally translates as the science of life. And this began about 600 BCE. So about, you know, we're, we're talking about 900,000 years into this period, this Vedic period. The Ayurvedic practitioner was called a Vidya, or Vidya, meaning a person of profound knowledge. The roots of Ayurveda lay in the Atharva Veda in its reliance on medicinal value of plants and other matter. So this, this term, Atharva, is sort of derived from the priests of the Agni cult, and they, they include the Artharvans, the Angiras, and the Burgus, uh, which consider proficient uh, in healing through magical religious rites. All of these were. So uh, they're also considered the authors of the Artharva Vita, which contains details about early understanding of human body, its diseases, and their cures. So some knowledge, you know, some, some real practical knowledge started to come out of that sort of Vedic tradition of the priests and, and, and that. And so that's where we have this uh, Ayurvedic, and the roots of this are in this Atharva Veda. Uh, Veda, I think, uh, in this context, it kind of means a book or writings or something along those lines. So, however, Ayurveda emerged as a fully developed rational theory of health and disease, purposely veering away from magical, religious, and empirical thinking. So we have that break. Again, this is happening around 600 BC, which is around the time that it's happening with Hippocrates in Greece. And we, we're starting to see, uh, you know, the Wang Yi Jing, sort of the proto-origins of that in China. So there seem to be in the 600 to 400 C, which, you know, I sit there and go 600 to 400 sounds very similar to us, but it really isn't. It's 200 years. That's a long time. But it seemed like this was happening around the world at a very similar sort of time frame. So perhaps um, this continues with, from uh, Singh and, and their team uh, writes that perhaps the most prominent of all ancient Indian physicians, Chushruta, is considered to be the father of Indian surgery as well as the first plastic surgeon in the world. Very little is known about the period when Chushruta lived 
Um, I, I heard various timings of this, but 600 to 400 BCE is in ballpark. So we're talking about the same time that we're, we're talking about. And, and we're about to find out that he is believed to be the son of a great sage. Uh, please excuse my pronunciations. Vishwamitra. And he studied medicine and surgery under Divadasa uh, Damphantari, king of Kashi. It has Benares in parentheses. I think that's maybe the modern area. And founder of Ayurveda. So he, he actually studied under the founder of Ayurveda. So um, when we're saying Ayurveda was established in 600 BC, he was shortly after that period of time. And Shushruta was actually known, the ancient Greeks knew about him and called him Sukruta. So, uh, so the Greeks, and, and remember there is, you know, trade happening between the ancient Greeks and China and India, you know, and all that happening. So there is some cross-pollinization of thought that's happening here. Uh, continuing with Singh and their team, ethical principles introduced to the West by Hippocrates. So again, uh, Greek physician, father of Western medicine, uh, circa 460 uh, to 370 BCE. <clears throat> bear close resemblance to the principles promulgated initially by Shushruta and later by Sharaka. So they're, they're actually implying that a lot of the Hippocratic oath and ethical principles actually may have come from Shushruta, who, as you can see here, may have predated him a little, you know, by maybe 100 years, maybe. And the timing here is a little bit shaky. Um, he, um, Sharaka is, is a, another famous Indian physician who came after Shushruta as well. Uh, Shushruta emphasized the importance of balancing theoretical knowledge with practical experience in order to achieve good results. The text attributed to him, though not available in its original form, is called Shushruta Tantra, or um, sometimes Tantra is translated as compendium, so the Shushruta Tantra or compendium. It was sub subsequently revised and expanded by Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna into the work we now know as Shushruta Samhita, which is something that we have available and is one of the, it's very interesting, super interesting ancient medical text. So this, this Shushruta Samhita uh, contains chapters on recognition and treatment of diseases, uh, surgical instruments, surgical procedures, and the management of poisoning. So surgery, remember, uh, I, I mentioned Shushruta is sort of famous for being the father of surgery. He was doing surgery and we're talking hundreds of years um, BCE, 600 um, BCE, surgery. That's amazing. There are some ancient accounts of surgery, but not this extensive, I don't think. So topics of specific interest include fistula and ano. This is a fistula is, is uh, basically a, a, a tunnel. You know, you have a boil and it actually tunnels through into the anus. That's fistula and ano. Um, and that usually needs to be dealt with surgically and in modern days, strong antibiotics. So that's an interesting idea that that is something that's in this book, you know, from, you know, it was compiled and is the Sushruta Samhita is actually kind of found three or 400 CE. So we're talking several hundred years after the original uh, Shushruta uh, uh, Tantra that we, we mentioned. So, you know, there's some embellishment, some additions and stuff, but we're still talking ancient. So uh, again, uh, special interests in this uh, book, topics of special interests include the fistula and ano, hemorrhoids, intestinal obstruction, care of wounds, application of dressings, earlobe piercing, 
cataract surgery. That's interesting. Bladder catheterization, use of leeches, as well as treatment of women and children. So really sort of a complete, uh, maybe not totally complete, but at least topically somewhat there. Very interesting topics, at least in, in most realms of medicine. Uh, and again, old book. Shushuda was the first to suggest that malaria was caused by mosquito bites. That's huge. He is most famous for introducing rhinoplasty, which is, is plastic surgery of the nose, a procedure performed commonly since mutilation, mutilation of the nose was often the punishment accorded to criminals and prisoners. The procedure described by him is as follows. This is a quote. Now, I shall deal with the process of affixing an artificial nose. First, the leaf of a creeper long and broad enough to fully cover the whole of the severed or clipped part should be gathered, and a patch of living flesh equal in dimension to the preceding leaf should be sliced off from below upwards from the region of the cheek, and after scarifying it with a knife, swiftly adhered to the severed nose. Now, some of the, the people who comment on Shishruta in this particular procedure have said that something similar is still used today in rhinoplasty. So this is something that is, is uh, you know, still, I mean, obviously not in the same exact context, but still somewhat used in modern day plastic surgery. There follows after this a description of how to control bleeding, keep the nasal passages patent or open, and application of a suitable dressing. Alcohol and other plant-based sedatives were used to provide pain control, amnesia, and for controlling patient movement as were able-bodied assistants. So, okay, let's take a moment here. Plant-based sedatives were used to provide pain control, amnesia, and controlling patient movement. That's, that's anesthetics. That's stuff that is not widely used, you know, since this time. Uh, until the mid-1800s. I mean, this is amazing that they were using this, plant-based sedatives. Continuing, Sushruta was the first physician to advocate physiotherapy or uh, physical therapy for patients recovering from surgery. Again, pretty modern staple today. The techniques described by him were used by British surgeons in India in the 18th century and by Italian surgeons two centuries earlier. So, interesting, interesting. He did have students. He, Shushruta attracted a number of disciples who were known as um, Saushrutas. Uh, again, my pronunciation, please excuse me, were required to study for six years before they even began hands-on training in surgery. Kind of sounds like modern medicine, medical training. Before starting their training, they had to take a solemn oath to devote themselves to healing and to do no harm to others, which can, can be compared to the Hippocratic Oath. Again, this is from Singh and their, and their bunch, so that's interesting. After the students had been accepted by Shushruta, he would instruct them in surgical procedures by having them practice cutting on vegetables or dead animals to perfect the length and depth of an incision. Really fascinating. You know, again, if you're learning, you know, modern day surgery, you haven't gone to medical school and we are trained, we would use what, what pig trotters is what we call them in, in uh, Australia, but pig's feet to, to practice incisions and sutures and things along those lines. 
Once the students had proven themselves capable with vegetation, animal corpses, or soft or rotting wood, and had carefully observed actual procedures on patients, they were then allowed to perform their own surgeries. These students were trained by their master in every aspect of the medical arts, including anatomy. Fascinating, this training. I mean, this is pretty extensive training, and it's written down. We know this. All right, continuing, Sushruta wrote the Sushruta Samhita in an instruction manual as an instruction manual for physicians to treat their patients holistically. Disease, he, he claimed, following the precepts of Charaka. Again, I'm a little confused by this because this implies that Charaka predated him, but I think um, Charaka was after Shushruta, so I'm a little confused about this passage. But disease, he claimed, was caused by imbalance in the body, and it was the physician's duty to help others maintain balance or to restore it if it had been lost. Well, maybe part of my, my issue here is Shushruta predated Sharaka, but I think the Samhita, the Shushruta Samhita, was after Sharaka. So maybe that's where some of my confusion plays, even when it was actually compiled, was afterwards. Um, so it was the physician's duty to help others maintain balance or to restore it if it had been lost. To this end, anyone who was engaged in the practice of medicine had to be balanced themselves, which is very interesting. That's something that we see uh, from, if we look at the Hippocratic Oath, very similar um, stuff is, is said about um, the Hippocratic Oath and what doctors should be. And also in um, Sun Tzu Miao's uh, On the Absolute Sincerity of Great Physicians in China, which was 600 CE, so um, after the Samhita, similar, you know, how can a, an unhealthy uh, doctor uh, create health? So very interesting. So this balance idea actually carries through Greek, Greek and, and Chinese medicine as well. And that's it for as an introduction to Shushruta. So without further ado, why don't we get into our herb of the day, Shilajit. So uh, I did I, I did get a, a couple different pronunciations. I looked up the pronunciation to make sure I was I was correct with it. And I did get a, a few different pronunciations of this. Um, I think most of them landed on Shilajit. Um, so that's what I'm going with. There were a few um, off uh, ones, but there were a couple, you know, machine-generated ones. I'm like, how could you even put that on? But anyways, moving on. So before we begin discussing today's herb, I want to remind everyone that we've discussed Ayurvedic herbs and many of the basics of this medicine in two previous Herbs Herbs episodes. In episode eight, we looked at the herb ashwagandha uh, or withania somnifera, uh, which, by the way, I as I'm studying Shilajit, I don't I actually talk about it in today's podcast, but there often they were there were a lot of studies that that used both of those, so they're they're used similarly. So looking at ashwagandha is not a bad um, thing to do when you're when you want to learn a little bit about shilajit as well because they're often used together. So um, in that episode eight, uh, we, we we looked at ashwagandha as well as discussed basic concepts such as the gunas or primal qualities, elements ether, fire, earth, air, and water. The tridosha, vata, pitta, and kapha, which definitely play a huge role today. Rasa, the six tastes. Virya, the, the energy or warmth or coolness of the herbs. The vipaka, or post-digestive effect of herbs, which is a, a concept very unique to Ayurvedic uh, medicine, I believe. As well as the karma or action of the herbs. So we're going to talk a lot about a lot of these things as we discuss shilajit. So if you want a sort of a refresher question, go back to our episode 8. In episode 23, we discussed the three herbs in the common Ayurvedic combination of Triphala, 
uh, and these included uh, Philantus emblica or amla, uh, Terminalia valerica or valeric mirabellin, and Terminalia chebula, uh, Terminalia chebula or mirablin. We again discussed the basis of Ayurvedic herbology applied to these three herbs. So if you want to go back and get a little bit more about Ayurvedic medicine and Ayurvedic herbology, there's a couple episodes to do it. So uh, in other words, we recommend the listener um, might want to go back to these two episodes and listen to them before taking a deep dive into today's herb. But having said that, you will still get a lot. We will try to ex- briefly explain the various aspects of today's herbs, today's herb, Shilajit. So you're not going to miss anything. It's just if you want a little bit more depth, Definitely want to explore those at once. <coughs> so according to Sodi, so I, you know, I have two major textbooks that I use um, for Ayurvedic herbs, and Sodi's is one of them. The other one is Frawley and Ladd, and you'll see me talking about both of them quite a bit. So according to Sodi, although it is not from a plant source, Chilajit nevertheless is one of the most important preparations of Ayurvedic and various other medical traditions. We're going to talk about some of those other uh, medical traditions, some that we don't usually talk about. In its raw form, chilajit is a bituminous substance. So I don't know about you. I had to look this up. So uh, bituminous means that it's um, bitumen-like. So bitumen is a black, viscous mixture of hydrocarbons obtained naturally as a residue from petroleum distillation. It is used for road surfacing and roofing. So, you know, the other definition of bitumen was coal. I think that's probably a little bit more appropriate. Basically, it's a mixture of hydrocarbons. We're made up of hydrocarbons. Our herbs are made up of hydrocarbons, so that makes sense. But it's, it's coal-like. It's oil-like. It's, it's, this is interesting. So I almost look at this as like um, when I read about it and get into it, it says composed of vegetable organic matter within a dark red gummy matrix. I kind of look at this as like, um, not quite oil, like in between, it's like going to be oil, but it isn't quite oil. It's, it's sort of an interesting sort of uh, substance. It's, it's it almost, you know, when I read about it, I'm like, should we be even ingesting this? But as we're going to find out, it's really actually a very useful herb. So the English translation of Shilajit, I love this translation, is conqueror of mountains and destroyer of weakness. That is one of the coolest names ever for an herb. Um, Tierra, who uh, uh, runs an herbal school and has a lot of information out there, uh, husband and wife team, says it means rock invincible, that the translation is actually rock invincible. And that sounds a little bit more appropriate, um, though I, I do like the grandiosity of conqueror of mountains and destroyer of weakness. Uh, so uh, I love that translation. And that, that translation, by the way, is in many sources. It's not just one or two. Um, Tierra's translation of Rock Invincible, that was the only place I saw that. So um, I, I love it. There are other names for this. Black Asphaltum, Asphalt Sea. The, the Latin is Asphaltum Punjabinium, Pujobium, Punjabinium. I, I, I don't know, I can't even pronounce it or asphaltum bitumen. So we have that bitumen uh, word in there as well. A lot of asphalts here. So again, it's almost like, it's interesting, isn't it? And then it's also silagit without the H, uh, shilajita, uh, shilajit with E-E-T, solaris, mumi, mumijo, momia, momia sharga, barishin, 
uh, Jarobi. Again, I don't even know the languages he's from, so please excuse any of my, my pronunciations. Uh, Baragashun, Bragshun, Chow Tang, uh, Silajatu, which is uh, Hindi or Silajatu. Yeah, I guess that's it. And Mumio, which is Russian. And there's one other that I thought was really interesting. I didn't include it here. And um, the reason why is it's a Chinese term is, um, uh, I'm totally blanking on it off the top of my head, but it actually is for a different herb. It's for flying squirrel feces, uh, Wulingjir. That's what it is, Wulingjir. And they say that that can, Wulingjir could be Shiliji. So I'm, I, you know, Wulingjir is flying squirrel excrementum. I've seen the herb. I, it's nothing like Shiliji. So I, I didn't really like that. But um, apparently sometimes it can be described as that in Chinese terms. But in general, this is not a Chinese herb, and I couldn't find any huge correlations. There's some very good inferences of what it does in Chinese medicine, which we're going to get into, but it is not a Chinese herb. All right, so Frawley and Latz, that's another textbook that I use, say something similar to study about this herb. Uh, and here's what they say. Shilajit is one of the wonder medicines of Ayurveda, used for many conditions of weakness and debility. It is not an herb, but a kind of natural mineral pitch from the Himalayas and carries the healing power of these great mountains. There are several varieties of the substance of which the black color has the main therapeutic properties. Everything I, I read, by the way, there's four major colors and they, they got into different names. I'm not getting into all that. But they all said basically black is the only one that has therapeutic properties. So even though there's other types, black is the one to go with, which is a brownish black. Um, it can be expensive, but does not require large doses. <coughs> all right, getting into dosage. Sodi says uh, the dosage is 250 to 500 milligrams twice per day after meals. That is a very low dose of an herb in general. And uh, they're saying powder here. Probably in lat agree. I think it comes in pill and powder form. And um, here's an interesting, while Shilajit is primarily an Ayurvedic herb, it is also a pretty prominent Russian herb. It has been used by the Russian military, cosmonauts, and Olympic and other athletes to increase strength, lean muscle mass, mental and physical recuperation from stress, and to enhance physical performance, according to Tierra. According to, uh, so let's get into its action. What does it do? So according to Sodi, Shilajit is a Rasayana, which is a rejuvenant or restorative herb and an adaptogen. So when we say rejuvenant or restorative, from a Chinese perspective, we're kind of talking tonic. You know, this is what builds you up a little bit. And an adaptogen. And an adaptogen is a natural substance considered to help the body adapt to stress and to, to exert a normalizing effect upon bodily processes. And uh, I love this. This was... Uh, you know, a definition uh, that I looked up, and it says a well-known example is ginseng. Gin ginseng is probably the most well-known of adaptogens. Frawley and Ladd add to this saying it has astringent and pungent tastes or rasas, a bitter, warm, pungent post-digestive effect or vipaka, and it decreases kapha and bitta and increases pitta. They continue to say it affects the nerve and reproductive tissues and urinary, nervous, and reproductive systems. We're going to find it's, it's actually considered an aphrodisiac. Actually, I don't really say that, but a lot of sources attribute aphrodisiac uh, properties to this, uh, both male and female. So that's kind of interesting. 
So also according to Farley and Land, it has the following actions. It is an alterative herb which cleanses and purifies the blood. That's what alterative means, is cleanses and purifies the blood. It is a diuretic herb, so it increases urination. It is a lithotriptic herb, which is, is uh, uh, helps dispel kidney bladder and gallbladder stones and is considered a type of diuretic action as well. So it's, it's sort of a subtype of the diuretic herb. It's also a lithotrophic herb, so these, these stones. It is antiseptic herb, and uh, antiseptic herbs are often pungent herbs used externally. So this is pungent, can be used externally as well. And it's tonic and rejuvenative as well. So tonic is sort of the word that we hear a lot, the rejuvenative, uh, uh, rasayana, is what we hear throughout. That's sort of its main function. Terra adds that it is anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and a nervine, which are herbs that strengthen the functional activity of the nervous system. So what are some of its indications? What would you use it for? So Farley and Ladd discuss various indications for use of this herb, including diabetes, obesity, jaundice, gallstones, uh, dysuria, so this is uh, trouble urinating or painful urination, cystitis or inflammation of the bladder, edema, kidney stones, hemorrhoids, sexual debility, menstrual disorders, asthma, epilepsy, insanity, skin diseases, and parasites. Sodi uh, basically agrees and includes just a different list saying similar things. So impotence, sterility, mental disorders, memory and learning, benign prostatic hypertrophy, or BPH, epilepsy, obesity, diabetes, anemia, bronchitis. Um, diabetes is good again. I don't know if that was my fault or their fault. I will take care of that. Dyspepsia or stomach issues, arthritis, tuberculosis, jaundice, heart disease, gout, kidney stones, parasitic skin diseases, urinary problems, leprosy, and allergic disorders. So um, very interesting. We see a widespread of indications for this. This is, we're going to find out, super important in general. Okay. So this is... To me, one of the most fascinating herbs about how it's gathered, how it's prepared, how it's used. Preparation, I'm not getting into too, too much, but let's let's talk about how you find it and what's, you know, a good quality is hard to find, you know, determine, but let's let's talk about all this. So preparation and good quality. Sodi says it flows out from fissures in the rocks during the heat of the summer sun. When dry, it is hard, organic, hummus-rich, and mineral-like, usually with a pale brown to brownish black color. She legit is found on rocks at high altitude, 1,000 to 5,000 meters in the Himalayan. And for those of you who aren't familiar, that's um, you know, a little over 3,000 to 15,000 feet uh, altitude in the Himalayan regions of India. The flora of the Himalayas is rich and varied. And for thousands of years, plant life has grown, absorbed nutrients from the, from the soil, then died and decayed. And that's pretty much what we're doing here. So continuing with Sodi. The shilajit found in the Himalayas is believed to be a fossilized form of thousands of years of accumulation of decomposing plant material, much like fossil fuels such as coal and oil. Shilajit is collected in the Himalayas during the summer months when the ice melts. I, I mean, just, I, since I buy all my herbs prepared, 
it's it's you know I like to go into what does it really take to get these herbs, and this has got to be one of the the most inter- one of the most interesting approaches to this. So, uh, and everyone has the same. So we're going to talk about a lot of different people on Offisher. So Tierra says there are four varieties. I mentioned that earlier: red, yellow, blue, and black. With the black variety used for healing, I mentioned that earlier. Tierra adds good quality shilajit is considered harder to find in the Himalayas now, but it's found in Russia and other European mountains. It appears to also exist in the U.S. Rocky Mountains, although there is no history of its use here. Again, there's, there, if you ask me, there's a pretty big step to finding this thing on the ground and then taking it internally and thinking that it's positive. And there were some stories, I didn't, I didn't get into it, but there's um, the story of how it was discovered is that there was uh, monkeys that were very, very strong and fit, and they were found to be eating this, and that's how it started to get into the diet. So uh, a tribe of monkeys, basically, is how that worked out. So Ron Teagarden, and, and he's an interesting one. Um, he's very knowledgeable in, in herbs. Um, so And he had a very interesting article on this, on this herb. Um, he says, the only problems with Shilajit, and of this I'm quite an expert, is that much of the shilajit sold in the world market is bogus, and much of it is impure or contaminated. Shilajit is an exudate that leaks from the earth. Detritus falls into steaming cracks in the earth where it percolates and ferments for hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands of years, then oozes to the surface, usually a cliff that exposes the treasured veins of shilajit. High-altitude Himalayan or Heaven Mountain shilajit are considered to be the best in the world, but supplies have been inconsistent due to the danger of collecting it and the huge demand for shilajit in the domestic Himalayan and Indian markets. So, you know, interesting is one of those herbs, like ginseng um, is, is another one. It's like, unless you know exactly where it's from and what it's, it'd be a little questionable about it. So Ding um, and his team had a really interesting article on where you find this stuff. So this is uh, a section of that article. It was a it was a good scientific article, but it was all just about you know where it's found and the sh- you know you know exactly the, it, it was very in depth about angles and steep and altitudes. But here's an overview. So um, Ding and their team says uh, Shilajit mainly distributed on sunny steep slopes and cliffs with a slope of sixty degrees or above. Uh, an altitude of 2,000 to 4,000 meters. The lithology character of the Shilajit exudation area, so lithology means stone study, you know, the, the, the stoning character of the Shilajit exudation, exudation area were, were mainly various metamorphic rocks of sedimentary rocks that were rich in organic carbon. This is getting a little bit into geology. Uh, the organic matter in Shilajit was found to flow out naturally from rocks along core, structural plane, and even accumulate on the surface of rock as a result of storage environment change caused by rock tectonic action. So rock tectonic action means rock shifts. Um, so uh, interesting. So um, they had pictures of this. Basically what you're, you're looking at is, you know, sides of cliffs that have like, uh, it looks like there's like, a leak, a black leak coming off the side of this. That's what it looks like when you see it in some of this. So Rawls, another interesting, he's a a medical doctor who who talks about herbs and stuff. And and, and both Rawls and Teagarden are selling a product. So you have to take a little bit of what they say with a grain of salt. They had some good information in it. So 
Rawls says, not technically an herb. Chilijit is a compact, gummy matrix of herbs, mosses, fungi, and other earthly matter. Compressed by mountains over long periods of time, it's then slowly released from mountainous fissures under the influence and flow of spring water. The precise composition of shilajit varies based on the plant types and geologic processes specific to the region where it is gathered. It must be specially processed and purified before being made into powder or tablets for use. And we're going to talk about why that is when we get into some of the cautions around this. So just, again, some of the, this information about how to get it is fascinating to me. So very interesting. All right. So we know what it does, what its traditional indications are. We know what some of its modern, uh, well, traditional actions are, some of its modern indications, how to get it. Let's talk about some other things about this. So first of all, how is this looked upon from Chinese medicine? So I, that's my background is Chinese medicine. I know a lot of my, my listeners are from a Chinese medical background. Um, but even if you're not, it's fascinating to see how this is viewed in different traditions. So um, Rawls uh, says Shilajit is a kidney yang tonic. And I, and I think that's probably uh, on ball. Rawls is, is a, again, a medical doctor, not a Chinese medical doctor. So, um, But he, he's, he seems to be pretty on the ball here. Ron Teagarden is, is interesting. He says it tonifies all three treasures, the Jing, Qi, and Shen, and detoxifies. So this is interesting. We don't usually see an herb that tonifies the three treasures. Jing, Qi, and Shen are super important in, in, in Taoist uh, thinking and and and, uh, and health and all that. It's more of a Taoist approach than the, the standard Chinese medical approach. Um, this is one of the areas where I think there's a slight difference between Chinese medicine and Taoist um, medicine. Um, and we don't actually have herbs that detoxify us. So, I, you know, I like this perspective from Tea Garden. And, and again, I, I, I like what he said. He, he's, he obviously knows his, his way around an herb. Um, so I like what he says. I just don't know how traditional this approach is um, to that. So um, the, the three treasures, Jing, Qi, and Shen, are essence, Qi, and spirit. Um, and and uh, we can spend a whole hour just discussing what those are. And I think I may have talked about them in a previous episode. Um, but if not, I will do that in an upcoming episode. They're very important concepts. Uh, so there you go. So interesting what Ron Teagarden says. Tierra, who I think is, is um, probably the most firmly established in Chinese medicine of these three, uh, says this is a relatively mildly warming spleen and kidney yang tonic. So he had, she adds in the spleen side of this, not um, just the kidney yang tonic. And I, I think that's, um, given it has some effects on, on digestion, I think that may be appropriate. What I think is really interesting here is we, we know this herb is, is, is warming, um, but what Tierra says is like, it's not partially warming. It's not like, a super hot yang tonic, like a lot of our yang tonics can be, but it's more on the side of the warming. It's it's a little bit more gentle, like Epimedi, um, uh, she says. And so I, I kind of like that approach to this. Western uses of this. So none of my usual Western herbal books, including the PDR for Herbal Medicines and the American Herbal Products Association's Botanical Safety Handbook, had a monograph on this herb. Even my usual pharmacognosy textbook, Pharmacognosy Fundamentals, Applications, and Strategies, which has a pretty strong Ayurvedic herbal perspective. It's, it's written by two, two Indians uh, and published, I think, in India, or originally published in India. 
did not discuss this herb. So I, I think that was kind of an interesting telltale about this. this is not used in Western in general. However, I did find some internet sources of Western uses of this herb, though I would like to take them with a grain of salt. So Rawl says in Greco-Arabic traditional medicine, known as Unani Tib, uh, Shilajit was used internally for a variety of preventative uses, as well as topically for swollen, arthritic, or bruised areas. Uh, Tierra simply states it is considered an adaptogen and rejuvenative in Western herbal herbalism, which we already said it was. Uh, she adds in Greco-Arabic medicine, uh, in Greco-Arabic medicine, is used as an antidote to poison and to treatment of diseases. And here's the interesting, Russian medicine, again, we talk about Russian, this is a pretty important herb in Russian herbal medicine. Russian medicine uses it as a daily recuperative health tonic due to its healing, anti-aging, and anti-inflammatory properties. There are some interesting Western uses. Again, not, not commonly used in the West. All right, let's talk about some commentary on this. Frawley and Ladd say Shilajit possesses great curative powers and is considered capable of treating many diseases, particularly those of the aging process. It is an important rejuvenative and tonic, particularly for kapha, vata, and the kidneys, as in the case of people who have long suffered from diabetes and asthma. It can be taken for general health maintenance and is good for those who do much mental work or practice yoga. Diarvetic jelly uh, chaya. Chayavanprash uh, contains shilajit as one of its main ingredients, and it acts as a catalytic agent for promoting the action of other tonic agents. So it's, it's useful with, with other tonics, basically. Tierra says, quite simply, shilajit is a very powerful substance. Warming in energy, it both rejuvenates and detoxifies uh, by scratching accumulated toxins from the tissues and channels. I like that scratching. Interesting. It especially treats the urinary, nervous, and reproductive systems, yet also lowers blood sugar, builds stamina, and increases strength. In Ayurveda, Shilajit is considered one of the excellent medicines. So again, really, really, really important medicine. Uh, so combinations. Uh, again, you know, while specific combinations were not obvious from my research, Farley and Ladd say, it acts as a catalytic agent for promoting the action of other tonic agents and therefore is good to combine with other tonics, as, as I just mentioned. Rawl says, Shilajit is a kidney yang tonic often used with other herbs such as cinnamorium, morinda, Asian ginseng, or epimedium to promote healthy sexual functioning in both women and men. Those are all Chinese herbs as well as potentially, I guess, Western herbs as well, but these are all uh, Chinese herbs as well. Uh, so that's it for combination. So interesting, you know, it can be used in combination. Uh, I know there are traditional combinations of this in Ayurvedic medicine, but, uh, you know, we don't get into that too much here. Contents. Uh, so what's in this? Rawl says, from a chemical constituent perspective, shilajit is composed of humic and fulvic acids, which are both strong antioxidants a wide variety of minerals, iron, zinc, selenium, among others, dibenzo-alpha-pyrones, which are metabolites that are antioxidant, anti-allergic, antimicrobial, and antiparasitic, squalene, which is an immunostimulant, 
and polyphenols such as chebulic acid, which is antioxidant, and the elegic acid, which is anti-allergic. So interesting constituents. Tierra says shilajit is high in fulvic and humic acids. That's, that's sort of the common theme is this fulvic and human acids are huge. Uh, and she says humic acid is a type of fulvic acid. Fulvic acid has a powerful antibiotic property that unlike pharmaceutical antibiotics doesn't cause resistant strains of disease nor kill favorable bacteria. That's quite a feat. These acids are a complex mixture of many different carbon-rich materials that occur naturally and in unison all over the world in coals, plants, and water sediments. Fulvic acid is actually a kind of humic acid with larger oxygen concentrations to warrant its own name. These acids are powerful electrolytes, free radical scavengers, antioxidants, chelators, detoxifiers, and nutrients. In fact, they are often sold together as supplements today. So in other words, what she's saying is is a natural source for it. Uh, Sodi agrees with these constituents, saying it has relatively neutral pH, 6.2 to 8.2. So it, it's a range, and it, it ranges from uh, slightly acidic to slightly basic. Uh, but remember, 7 is considered neutral pH, so it's, it's, it's roaming around 7, maybe a little bit on the basic side. And 15.4 to 21.4% fulvic acid composition. So a good chunk of this, you know, about one-sixth to one-fifth of it, is going to be this fulvic acid. So that's, that's one of its main constituents here. So what does the science say about chelogene? So Sodi goes into quite a lot of depth and lists many studies with pharmacological activity of this herb. The most are rat studies. I'm not a big fan of rat studies because just because it happens in a rat does not mean it happens in humans. Um, there was one, he talked about a study of 35 men that were um, where there were significant increases in total sperm count, motility, and serum testosterone and follicle-stimulating hormone levels after taking Shilajit. Uh, the rat studies they did talk about support its use in cognitive activity, anti-ulcerogenic, which means it stops ulcers from forming, anti-inflammatory, anti-diabetic, and both male and female infertility, adaptogenic activity, and as an anti-dyslipidemic. In other words, it can help cholesterol levels. Um, that was one that kind of perks up, but it's not, doesn't seem to be like the main one. It's always like in several lists, it was always the last thought. So it's kind of interesting. I don't think it's commonly used as, as that, but several lists kind of mentioned it. So Rawls, Rawls also has several rat studies as well as a human study. The human study looked at 63 men and showed increased retention. Uh, There's an increased retention of maximal muscular strength following a physical activity regimen in those taking Shilajit. Um, so in other words, if you're going to work out uh, at high levels, Shilajit actually may help with that. Animal studies say it may help in chronic fatigue syndrome. Really interesting if it can help with that. Again, animal studies. It's not clinical studies, not human studies. It may or may not be in, in humans, but it points in that direction. Uh, it can increase in animals, increase white blood cell activity, so that's our immune system, healthy immune and thyroid function, and altitude sickness. Another one that's mentioned a couple times, but not strongly, is altitude sickness. Mittal uh, uh, and, and his team, this was a review of, of, of Shilajit, adds rat studies supporting analgesia, so uh, pain relief, anti-anxiety, and antifungal, at least in uh, in vitro, so in, in test tubes, so that is an actual rat study. They anti, it's antifungal in vitro, which may or may not mean anything. So, 
So that's the science. Um, when I looked at uh, reviews, I like to look at reviews. I didn't really come up with many uh, good reviews. I, my bottom line for me and the science of Shilajit is there needs to be a lot more research done uh, to prove any of this. Um, though uh, it's it, it sounds really interesting in a lot of ways. And I'm really fascinated about some of the possibilities here, but I want to see a lot stronger studies before I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Drug of interactions, a search for cyclone 3450 and peak glycoprotein interactions with Shilajit did not find any interactions. And uh, Talbert, another review, agrees saying no drug interactions were found at the time of writing this paper. Uh, you know, this is one of the, you know, as we, we've said, this is probably one of the most important Ayurvedic medicines out there, but it is not hugely on the radar and it hasn't, there aren't a whole bunch of studies. I'd like to see a lot more studies going on, but at this point it doesn't look like there's any drug or interactions for us to be worried about. But there are some concerns. Brawley and Ladd say this herb should not be used for febrile diseases. So if you have a fever, don't take this herb. Sodi adds that shilajit should not be taken by people who have low blood pressure, should not be taken with prescription antidepressants, uh, including SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and MAO inhibitors or monoamine oxidase inhibitors, or anti-anxiety medications. So don't take it with anti-anxiety medications. So it can help as depression, can help with anxiety supposedly, um, but uh, if you're having the medications, don't take them at the same time. And so he also says uh, its safety in infants injured in pregnancy is unknown. Rawls says, do not use unprocessed or unpurified shilajit as it could be contaminated with potentially toxic fungi and heavy metals. If you have hemochromatosis or another condition that causes iron retention, be mindful that shilajit contains about 0.8 milligrams of iron per 250 milligram serving. So hemochromatosis is basically too much iron in the blood and that can eventually be life-threatening, especially if you can't, if you don't treat it. So I, I thought that was very uh, wise of Rawls to include that as a, as a caution here. Tiara uh, says, do not use raw shilajit as it can be contaminated with toxic fungi. So it, it, it echoes what, it, she echoes what Rawls says. Do not use if there are high uric acid levels. Uh, do not take with heavy or hot natured foods. Caution in yin deficiency with heat signs. So this is warming, so we don't want to add a lot. You know, we don't want to put it into a warming condition, a warm condition like yin deficiency with heat signs. Um, and I, the high uric acid levels are interesting. That's that's um, you know, it, it, it because of the fulvic, uh, the fulvic and the humic acids, we don't want to add more acid into the scenario. So there, there's some interesting concerns. I think they're valid concerns. And some of them are a little bit more modern. I like that. Okay. Well, that was Shilajit. That was everything today. That was a lot. So we started our podcast today with a discussion of another of the great physicians in the world, one of, if not the most famous of Indian, uh, Vidyas, Shushruta. And then we discussed, discussed a really different herb, Shilajit, an oozing of old plant material from the side of cliffs, that is one of the most important and tonic of Ayurvedic herbs. I knew nothing about this herb before preparing this episode. Now I feel I know quite a bit about a really useful herb, and that's what this is all about. I, I gotta say, I'm, 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 you know, there are herbs that I, I, I go through after one of these, uh, after I do this for herbs, and, and there are herbs that I go through, I'm like, okay, I learned a lot, 
probably not going to use that herb, but I'm glad I learned it. Moving on. This is one of those, and, and I have this sort of the same feeling with ashwagandha as well, because I'm not an Ayurvedic practitioner, um, but there's such strong, I mean, it, these herbs are strong and this tradition is so strong. And, and I look at this shiliji and I'm like, I, a lot of this sounds really useful, uh, you know, for, for me as, as an aging uh, male. Um, maybe this is one that I want to add into my, my regimen. Um, but then again, I, you know, I tend to warm. I don't want to do it, but it's a gentle warm. I, I have all these thoughts, but it's, it's fascinating that I'm thinking about these things in regard to this herb, because this is an herb, before I started researching this, uh, this herb wasn't on my radar. There's no way I was going to consider taking it. And now I'm kind of going, huh, this is interesting. This has, hits a lot of things. I wish it had more research. I wish it was stronger, but it has this Ayurvedic tradition of thousands of years. I can't put that aside and I go, okay, maybe there's something here that I need to, to think about adding into my herbal regimen. So that's where I'm left. I'm not sure I'm going to add it in or not, but I'm, I'm really happy to have contemplated adding it in as we go along. So that's, that's this herb. Um, <laughs> Mitchell says we need a, a course on procuring it <laughs> expensive and hard to determine the product is good purity. Yeah really hard to do that. And, and that is an issue. And, and I don't know about you. Um, I think I would need to take a lot of it before I could even think about procuring it on my own. So I don't know if that would be a, a, a proper way of, of going about this. But yeah, it's, it's quite the, the process to get it. So well, thank you guys for hanging in there. Um, on our next episode, now I'm going to take a break uh, for a little bit. This is, uh, uh, as I'm recording, this is December 17th. So I'm going to take a break over the holidays, so we won't be getting back to this for, for a little while. But I already have our next episode planned. And in our next episode, we'll be looking at another Chinese herb, Jusha or Cinnabar. Historically, this quote-unquote herb, it's another one of those, is extremely important to Chinese and Taoist development and Chinese alchemy. Maybe I'll have the little something different on Chinese alchemy. That'll be fascinating. And the real question for a modern audience is, is it safe? It is used. It has... Um, purposes, but is it safe? Because cinnabar, if you're not familiar with cinnabar, is an ore of mercury, which is not safe. So we'll, we'll look at this. As usual, we'll be exploring something a little different. And it sounds like there's going to be an awesome mashup of philosophy, history, and herbage, and I want to say safety, on our next exciting episode. So please join us uh, when, when that one is coming out. So Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, could you please do us a huge favor? Give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you very much for even considering that. We don't have a huge audience, but what we do have, I think, is very faithful and is, is very strong, so appreciate that very much. So, And remember, you can get TEUs, Continuing Education Units, and NCCAOM professional development activities at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's Integrative Medicine Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L.org. And if you want that huge deal that we were talking about at the beginning, just put a slash mega deal on that and you're good to go. IntegrativeMedicineCouncil.org slash mega deal. And you can always get in touch with me at Dr. Greg at SpurbsHerbs.com or at our website, www.SpurbsHerbs.com. And that's it. So thank you very much. As usual, I have my big bibliography. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Janelle. Timothy, Timothy Dobbins, Dobbins. Roger Campbell.